And so there is a very visceral generational divide, and it has the possibility to really tear at the fabric of the Democratic Party. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 3rd. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston with a look at how the generational divide over the war in Gaza is playing out among Democrats on Capitol Hill and their staffers. And later, Eric Gardner joins Ben to discuss the merits of the New York Times lawsuit against OpenAI and why the Times case might not be as strong as it seems. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. If you're coming back from the holiday, and you're worried about getting back to the grind this week, remember, it's a short work week. I had a great break. Thanks to everyone on the team for filling in for me when I was gone, enjoying some downtime in Richmond, Virginia, the River City. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk about some generational fault lines in Congress, in the Democratic Party, that are being exposed by the conflict in Gaza. This is a fascinating topic. Abby, welcome to the powers that be. It's great to see you. It's great to hear you. And I want to first give you my condolences for the Texas Longhorns losing in the Sugar Bowl to Washington. I know that I know that hit hard. I know that hit it's hard. no fun, but it was a great game. And I'm really excited. They're back on the, the national landscape <laughs> like where we belong. That's right. That's the right, the right way to look at it. Texas has been out of the conversation for too long. You were in it. That was a good, I hope both teams just have fun uh, comment from you. So very nice. Abby, you also filled in for me this week in the best and the brightest and wrote a really fascinating piece uh, called TikTok Geopolitics and Gen Z House Fault Lines. You lead with the fact that last weekend over the New Year's holiday, several Democratic members of Congress found out that their personal phone numbers had been leaked and then hundreds of text messages from pro-Palestinian activists started to, to flood the inboxes of these Democratic members of Congress, uh, complaining about U.S. policy in Israel and, and listing 
uh, a series of policy demands, of course, a ceasefire. That's the, the most signal demand from, from the left in terms of Israel at this point, even though there was a temporary ceasefire. An end to U.S. aid to Israel, an end to the genocide. That's in quotes, according to your piece. This is a shocking breach of privacy, but we, we have to assume that these leaks probably came from younger staff members on Capitol Hill somehow because there have been letters, open letters coming from the ranks of apparently the the White House, you know, Capitol Hill offices, federal offices complaining about U.S. policy. And most of these are coming from young progressives who are, are really angry about President Biden and the Democratic Party's stalwart support for Israel, um, their apparent fealty to APAC, which is nothing new. But this stuff is all very new and shocking, right? Yeah, I think it's and I don't I I don't have any reporting to indicate it's coming from staffers. These numbers can get out in other ways. These lobbying tactics are not exactly received well. So it's it's just a total disruption. And then I, I also have reporting that there's been some more than a handful of quiet resignations on the Capitol of younger mm. staffers. And so there is a very visceral generational divide. And it has the possibility to really tear at the fabric of the Democratic Party. But at the same time, there are increasingly members of Congress who are coming over to their side, not because of the way they're being lobbied and some might say harassed. It's it's because of the images coming out of Gaza are so brutal. But mm-hmm. it is it is just a really painful divide. And there's a number of theories on what's going on here. But it's um, it has certainly shocked me with a Democratic Party that's been very united since Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016. Yeah. And look, there's been the, the other protests I mentioned were um, letter, open letters to President Biden from supposedly Uh, 40 White House interns uh, and then a bunch of other interns on Capitol Hill sent an open letter protesting the war. None of these letters were signed. Uh, Paul Fari at The Washington Post later reported on this. It's actually kind of impossible to know how serious these letters are because people are remaining anonymous, because they might just be one random person in an office that doesn't represent the majority views of uh, the administration or whichever Capitol Hill office they're coming from. But they ha- have been driving a wave of coverage. And there is a real, at least on the voter side uh, among Democrats, uh, a divide between younger progressives and millennials, Gen X, boomers in the Democratic Party. Uh, that's real. Polls have shown that. It's not a majority position, uh, we should say. Most members of Gen Z and the millennial generations generally, even if it's a slim majority, support uh, the White House response to the conflict in Israel and Gaza. But the level of support for the Palestinians is much higher among members of Gen Z than it is older generations. Now, you referred to this. Those voices, though, are not really represented in Congress except for you know, really members of the squad, Rashida Tlaib, Ilan Omar being the loudest among them, but also Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, Summer Lee. Um, you know, AOC has taken a more uh, massaged position <laughs> on Israel, uh, which she's she's sort of tended to do over the years as she leans a little more toward the mainstream at this point. Can you talk about the divide among members of Congress? Are there any more mainstream Democrats uh, on the Hill that are sort of coming over to the Ilan Omar from the river to the sea position here? 
I don't think it's that, but so I think there is immense frustration with Benjamin Netanyahu's prosecution of this war, and these mm-hmm. images are horrific, and that is doing more to push these members, at, at least privately, and I suspect that's going to move more to the fore, um, to be much more critical of um, what's happening in Gaza. One other interesting thing that's been pointed out to me is that younger staffers, younger Democrats, have lived most of their adult life with Netanyahu, who is mm-hmm. very much aligned with the Republican Party as Israel's prime minister. And their introduction to him came in 2014 when he basically poked Barack Obama obviously the president at the time, in the eye over his Iran nuclear deal in a joint address in the House chamber. So Mm. there's a lot going on here. But I would say members are increasingly frustrated with what they're seeing, and it has nothing to do with the way they're being lobbied. Abby, there's a narrative out there that uh, TikTok is influencing youth opinion on Israel and Palestine and basically swaying young minds into believing that Israel is an apartheid state and you know that they are responsible for genocide basically taking you know a lot of the the buzzwords from from the activists out there and and pushing them out to a larger number of people in this country uh, look TikTok is it, it's it's actually over exaggerated TikTok's influence um you know TikTok Instagram and Snapchat like pretty much are what Gen Z uses though are members of Congress worried about TikTok uh, bending youth opinion, and how are they responding to it? It is the number one thing that comes up in these conversations I'm having with both members and staffers, consultants, operatives. And what I think is truly fascinating about this is, especially if you were a Democrat who lived through the 2016 campaign, Mm -hmm. you're not inclined to put an app on your phone that's owned by a company in a foreign adversary country. These people had their emails hacked. It's just they're they're borderline paranoid. And so there is this entire conversation happening on TikTok that Democratic elders just don't seem to even be aware of. And that is how this became such a blindsiding event this fall. Yeah, there's sort of an opinion overlap here with what happened when the CEO of TikTok testified on Capitol Hill last year, uh, you know, Jamal Bowman is a good example. He was sort of, you know, leading rapid response for TikTok <laughs> and, and defending them against those hearings and basically saying that old guard people on Capitol Hill don't understand young people. But that is a, a pretty big swerve from the way Democrats talked about <laughs> tech companies and public opinion uh, in the 2016 2017 era when, you know, Foreign interference was a common scapegoat for the election of Donald Trump. And suddenly you have some younger progressives on the Hill defending a foreign-owned company that could possibly influence political opinion in the United States. But you're right, like the vast majority of members and senators, we should say, are not on the platform. And frankly, like, you know, while a lot of young staffers are, you know, I think the more senior level staffers aren't either. And there is a real disconnect there, again, not just with TikTok, but just about how opinion moves among people under the age of 30 who are not watching MSNBC and CNN. Uh, They are on their phones, and that's where they're getting information. But yeah, I mean, I still think that it needs to be said, younger millennial Democrats who, you know, aren't in the squad camp. I interviewed a couple of them a while back, Richie Torres, Jake Oakenkloss, um, you know, uh, Alyssa Sotkin, who's, you know, not just slightly misses the millennial cut, 
Um, but all of them, you know, are, are pretty much trying to, you know, run down the middle here and try to you know, defend Israel's right to respond, get Israel not to respond so forcefully at this point to Gaza. But they're also not totally reactionary lefties. Like not every young member of Congress is in the squad. There are plenty of Democratic moderates out there. They just don't get as much attention. But they, you know, they they seem like they understand uh, youth opinion. And at least in the piece that I did when I interviewed them, they were trying to push back on it. Um, uh, so, you know, these divides are have been flaring since this conflict began. But I don't know, this leak, this leak of phone numbers, to me, again, not my reporting, my innuendo, it's hard to see, it's hard to know who that would have come from. But my assumption is it would have been, you know, a younger staffer on Capitol Hill who's who's cranky about this sort of thing. Abby, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's good to be back. I am excited to talk to you uh, or maybe scared to talk to you because 2024, man, it's going to be a wild year in politics. Happy New Year, though, Abby. Always great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Peter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner in the new year to talk about what might be the biggest media case of 2024, the New York Times suing OpenAI. Eric, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so just to set the table, this was um, a couple days before Christmas, the Times sued OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement, arguing that its AI models were trained on the paper's work, that ChatGPT has been ripping it off. And they're saying that OpenAI should be held responsible for billions of dollars in statutory and actual damages. This feels like it was inevitable, that it was a long time coming, but it's definitely a really big deal in terms of the potential impact on the media business, of course, but also the AI business, which is still sort of semi in its infancy. So I want to get into all of this. Broad strokes, what, what is the New York Times argument here? And do you think they have a strong case? So, I mean, the broad argument is that uh, the OpenAI is committing copyright infringement by uh, feeding on their work. Do I think they have a strong case? Actually, I'm going to be a bit shocking here and, and say that I think it's one of the weaker cases brought against okay, the, the, a, the AI front. Not That's not to say that they can't win, but to me, this this reads as, as the New York Times wanting to be part of the conversation. It's a continued uh, element in, in negotiations over whether or not New York Times content gets licensed. And, you know, it could make waves in court. However, I do think that there are reasons why why we should all uh, take a pause and be a little bit skeptical about things. I mean, for, for, for starters, the complaint says that the AI is unlawfully using the Times work to create a product that competes with the paper. But is that really true? I mean, do you know anyone that goes to ChatGPT to read the day's news? I mean, not yet, but I, I presume that the Times is also sort of suing proactively here, that this could be a competitive product when it's um, integrated into search engines or to other business products. 
Yeah, perhaps. I, I mean, right now it's it's theoretically capable of, of delivering, say, like what happened at the most recent Republican presidential debate. But I know not, not a single person who uses it for that purpose or even thinks about using it for that purpose. And, you know, some, some of the allegations I see with respect to the output are is awkward. Uh, let, me, let me discuss that for, for, for a moment because, you know, the problem any journalistic outlet has uh, when uh, asserting a copyright claim is that really these outlets are only entitled to what's called thin copyright protection. And, and, and what do I mean by that? Well, facts aren't copyrightable. Only the original selection and arrangement of facts get protected. So so I might write a story about what happened last Saturday during the, the Cowboys-Lions game, but I don't have any monopoly on writing that story. You can write one too. You can't just lift my exact words. In other words, you can't plagiarize. So the New York Times basically has to show that ChatGPT is a plagiarist. And and if you read the lawsuit, you see the Times try to show that, that it's spitting out nearly verbatim passages of its own work. But then you dig a little deeper and, and, and you see some flaws in, in the analysis. Like why did ChatGPT do this? Because the New York Times gives its URL to ChatGPT. It delivers the, the paragraph or two of its article and prompts GPT to finish it. So nobody is really using ChatGPT this way. And what I really read in this lawsuit is the New York Times saying, hey, ChatGPT can be used to evade the paper's firewall. Now, that's an interesting claim. Um, maybe maybe it's a tool to circumvent copyright protection, but I'm, I'm skeptical that a judge is going to, to be impressed with this as a, as a straight copyright claim. It's funny, that actually reminds me a little bit of Elon Musk suing Media Matters, where he basically said that, um, yes, Media Matters proved that, that, that there are advertisements from you know major Fortune 500 blue chip advertisers appearing next to problematic content, but it was only because Media Matters repeatedly asked the algorithm, prompted the algorithm in very specific ways to sort of produce that result. And it sounds like a little bit what you're describing here, that yes, the Times in its lawsuit was able to show that GPT was producing these verbatim or semi-verbatim versions of its stories, but only after a sort of um, prompting process that maybe the average user wouldn't engage in. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that you know those nudges are going to be something that that the New York Times is going to be asked to explain. But the real like heart of the the matter is, is you know the scraping, the training of the AI on New York Times content, and that's where like all these lawsuits start exploring. And OpenAI is going to argue that for whatever reproduction happens in in the scraping of the paper's content, that's fair use. And and you know here I think. OpenAI has a has a decent defense. You know, I, I'm reminded of, the, of when I was a, a journalism student at, at Northwestern University, and I, I used to go to the library each morning and read the New York Times. Basically, I was trained on New York Times content too. Was that copyright infringement? I think I think most people would say no. That's not. That's that's fair use for me to you know consume New York Times content to become a a better journalist and potentially compete with with the Times. Now I, I understand what. ChatGPT does is at a much more monumental scale, but there's nothing in copyright law per se that makes something illegal just because it happens, you know, at scale. 
I think that, you know, these are sorts of things that are going to come up in court and why, you know, for all the commentary that I've heard that this is such a strong case that, you know, open AI should be quaking in its boots uh, over this uh, and that this is going to change the paradigm. uh, To me, I I think that the paper has some, you know, real uh, impediments ahead in court and it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a tough case. Well, let's let's talk about that issue of scale a little bit more because I, I mean, you know, sure. Imagine a young Eric Gardner at Northwestern University. You're reading the New York Times and then maybe citing it in a paper. That seems like obviously fair use under the law. Is there really not a differentiation between that and say OpenAI reproducing Times content on, on a on a global scale? I mean, this is the company that's making already billions of dollars in revenue a year. Is going to be making probably ten times that amount in in two or three years from now. The New York Times lawsuit says that the Times was the the single biggest proprietary data source that was used to train ChatGPT. Does that really fall under fair use in, in copyright law? You know, well, you know, I'm not going to say that's it's completely the same thing because you know there are four factors when it comes to a fair use analysis, and one of the factors is the amount and substantiality of, of what's used. So me reading the New York Times is you know probably just a little bit. Uh, AI using New York Times content is pro- probably a lot, so maybe that impacts the analysis somewhat. But I'm also reminded of a Google Books case from about a decade back. There, uh, Google digitized the collections of a bunch of libraries. And when the Authors Guild sued over this, the court ruled that the scanning was basically fair use, that it was transformative, that there was a higher purpose to to what, what was at play there. And I think, you know, some of the same principles will apply here. I think the, the courts will look at the fact that, you know, ChatGPT isn't taking, isn't training these on New York Times content to, you know, create a competitor to New York Times content. It's it's training uh, to basically learn the fundamentals of journalism so that, so that you know, it might uh, do something similar uh, upon request. But it's, you know, it's it's an interesting, tough case. But, uh, you know, I think that there there is, is some things that we should all just keep in mind and, and, and take a, a deep breath about. I think that there are a lot of cases going on over AI content. This is one of them. Uh, it's one of them to watch. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see how judges in, in, in different uh, jurisdictions uh, come to conclusions about these matters. And it's, you know, possible that, you know, eventually, uh, a case like this can, you know, get to the Supreme Court. Well, Eric, do you think the Times actually wants that? Like, are they looking for the sort of like, high level philosophical precedent setting ruling here that that establishes what these new sets of rules are for journalism in the AI age? Or or do you think the end game is really just money? I mean, the the Times could seek an eight or nine figure settlement here. You know, people have talked about whether there's maybe some kind of royalties arrangement they're seeking from OpenAI. This could be a a real revenue stream for the paper going into the future. Do you think that's the most likely outcome? Or are they looking to draw a line in the sand? I think the most likely outcome is going to be a settlement. I just look at how much money is is flowing into uh, artificial intelligence and how much money is is just dripping around, and and then I compare that to how much money you know a publication like the New York Times makes, and I just think that that this, there's lots of room to throw money at upset publishers and and to to settle this. That being said, I think some of the early decisions in this case and maybe some of the other AI cases might impact negotiations. 
negotiations. Uh, I, you know, I'd be surprised if if New York Times versus OpenAI uh, got the trial, but that's not to say that you know there won't be decisions in the next year that impact the leverage when going into a ne- negotiations over the licensing of content. Well, it seems like a bad fact, as lawyers say, for OpenAI, that the Times apparently reached out last April to do some kind of licensing deal, and OpenAI refused. And then in December, OpenAI announced they did some deal with Axel Springer, which is the parent company of Politico and Business Insider. I don't know what that deal looks like. I'm not sure if we've seen reported details. But it's just two weeks after that deal was announced that the Times files its lawsuit. That doesn't entirely seem like a coincidence to me, but I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, it's pretty blatant in the lawsuit itself that that this lawsuit came because negotiations broke down. Um, I don't know if it's a bad fact or, or, or something like that. I, I would just say that, you know, these sorts of things happening. I mean, it, it, not just in AI, too. I mean, over the years, there's been discussions about whether tech platforms like Google could even link to news sites. And in certain countries, they said, you know, you had to pay for pay for links, and then there was posturing, and sometimes the, the publishers would pull content and, and, and all that. So I think something similar is happening here. I think that there will be trials over uh, content on these AI platforms. I'm not sure whether or not the New York Times is going to be that case. To me, I, I think that this is, you know, part of a, of, a, of a negotiation as much as it is, uh, you know, the first step of, of a litigation that's going to come to some, you know, uh, you know, monumental uh, decision that will, you know, reshape the stage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the comparison to Google is a really germane one. I mean, people in the media industry, as you know very well, are hyper aware about how they totally failed to foresee that you know, Google search, that other browsers, that Facebook was going to cannibalize their advertising business and how they didn't do enough to protect their economic moat. Um, and nobody wants to make that same mistake again. I think, you know, you, you see a lot of that here, that the, the media industry and the Times in particular are trying to get ahead of this before the business model changes again and they find themselves on the wrong side of it. Yeah, I think part of it is a business uh, imperative, but I also wouldn't uh, underestimate the like moral outrage of just seeing your your content being, you know, uh, consumed by by these you know hot tech startups. Part of this is a legal story, but part of it is also just you know like a how dare they thing. And so you know, just we all got to keep in mind you know that both things like play and play together. And, uh, you know, I think the outcome of this is is, is definitely going to be interesting. Uh, I think it's one of the top stories in the coming year. Uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of different developments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eric, got to leave it there, but thanks very much. The story is just, just beginning. So uh, we'll, we'll have you back on soon to keep talking about it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.